again. Turn with me if you've got your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of 1 John chapter 1. And this morning we'll begin looking at verses 5 through 10 of 1 John chapter 1. We are in a series of studies through 1 John, a book which is so helpful for us when it comes to possessing assurance in the Christian life. Assurance of God's love for us, assurance of the forgiveness of sin, assurance that we are in true possession of saving faith. Every Christian needs to live with the assurance of his or her salvation. Because the assurance of salvation, this is key to joy in a Christian's life. Because when there's a loss of assurance, there will be a loss of joy. And so John writes this little letter to provide us with some assurance. And he wants us to know that we have eternal life. Now, by the time that he wrote this epistle, John is way up in years He's an old man who had followed Jesus from his youth Uh, as an apostle, as a disciple. He had spent time up close and personal with the Lord Jesus Christ. And now all these many years after the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, here you have the old apostle John, the last of the apostles who's still living at this time. He's calling upon the believers of his day to return to just a simple moment-by-moment walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he really expresses that in verse 7 through what he writes when he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. So in other words, John, the answer to the problems of the day, according to John, is just a closer walk with Jesus. Do you remember that song? Just a closer walk with Jesus. And that's what the Apostle John is really calling us to as believers through the five chapters of this little letter. A closer walk with Jesus and a closer, deeper relationship with one another as the people of God. These two things must be kept priority if we're going to live confidently while the world around us seems to be losing its mind. A closer walk with the Lord Jesus and a deeper relationship with my brothers and sisters in the faith. And so that really is what John is emphasizing here in this letter. Now we've looked at the first four verses a couple weeks back, but I want to begin reading with verse number five through the end of chapter one, verse 10. Notice the Bible says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I want to speak from this subject this morning, walking in the light. And really, I want to take at least a couple of weeks and deal with this passage 
And so this morning, I really want to make one point, although I do have three. I'll come back and give you the next two uh, next week. But walking in the light, this is what the Apostle John is describing here in these verses. And he's telling us that walking in the light involves that we know some things. Now, all of us agree that the world needs a Savior. You'll scarcely come across anyone who will deny the fact that the world we live in needs a Savior. Now, the essence of salvation, the identity of who that Savior is, this is where the world fundamentally disagrees. Some in our day say, well, the world needs a political Savior because man's problems are political in nature. And so you've got a lot of people who are looking for some type of political savior. Other people would say, well, no, we really need an environmental savior. When you consider the environment, and you consider uh, the issues of the day, uh, what we need is someone to save us from ourselves and save the environment. And then you've got some who say, well, our real issues are economic in nature, and so we need, we need a financial savior. We need someone who's going to save us from the rising gas prices. You've been to the grocery store lately? Man, we need somebody to save us from all this inflation that we're experiencing now. As a society. We need an economic savior. But you see, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ alone is the savior of the world. And Jesus alone is the Savior of the world because, listen, man's problems are not primarily political. Man's problems are not primarily environmental. Man's problems are not primarily financial or educational or what have you. The Bible says that our problems are spiritual in nature. Man has fallen. Man, his fundamental, most basic problem is sin. Therefore, he needs a Savior to save him from sin. And only Jesus Christ qualifies as that Savior. So, again, humanity has a sin problem. It's our most basic problem. Everyone is affected by this problem. Now, not everybody in the world will agree with that fact, but it's a fact nonetheless. And the world always misdiagnoses the problem. The world wants to deal with symptoms while being completely oblivious to the root cause, the real issue. The issue is man's heart. Way back in the 1970s, there was a um, psychologist, his name was Carl Menninger. But he kind of rocked the world uh, with a book that he wrote that shocked modern sensibilities at the time. And the title of the book was Whatever Became of Sin. Uh, In that book, he provided this critique of modern culture and how the word sin is now missing from our modern vocabulary. He made this statement. He said, in all of the laments and reproaches made by our seers and prophets, one misses any mention of sin. It was a word that used to be a watchword of prophets. It was a word once in everyone's mind, but now rarely is it ever heard. Is no one any longer guilty of anything? Where did sin go? He said, whatever became of it. And he makes the point that the word sin used to loom large over individuals and societies as a serious word. But somewhere along the way, the word disappeared. And now whenever it shows up, it's usually trivialized. You're more apt to see it on a dessert menu than hear it mentioned in a modern pulpit. 
It's a word uh, that was really a relic from the past. As far as society is concerned nowadays, it's far too primitive a word for our sophisticated age. I'll admit where I've made a mistake. I'll admit where I've slipped up, but in no way am I ever going to confess my sin. Now you think about the irony of our times, it's that the mob is so quick to attack and even cancel some for their sins, while no one wants to admit personal guilt over their own sins. And so in loveless days such as these, the gospel has never been more shocking. Uh, And Paul expressed it this way, Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son into this world of lostness and brokenness, sin, death, and need. And Jesus Christ is our Savior. Now, in the first century church to whom John is writing his letter, there existed this same tendency to get distracted by the problems of the day and move away from the simplicity of faith, just as is the case in our own times. If we're not careful, we can let all the troubles of the day move us from a place of simple faith and simple trust. And so in times like these, we easily forget that there has always been times like these. And the complexities, the struggles of life while living in a a fallen world, uh, this can overwhelm our hearts at times and really weigh us down. And John comes along and says, let me just strip all of that away. Let me just say something very simply. Here's what you need to do as a believer. Walk with Jesus. Remain firm in the faith. When you sin, confess that sin to God and move on. Show your love for Jesus by loving your brothers and sisters in the faith. This is the essence of what John is writing here in 1 John. So in these verses, the apostle explains for us in simple, understandable terms what it means to walk in the light. In days of darkness, he says, if you want to understand what it means to walk in the light, then let me tell you what it involves. And according to what he writes here, at least three important principles are involved. I'll give you the first. In fact, I'll mention all three, but I'm only going to deal with one of them. John says that we need to know something about God's nature. We need to know something about man's sin. And we need to know something about Christ's provision. Walking in the light in difficult days, dark days, demands that we know something about God's nature. We know something about man's sin and we know something about Christ's provision. So let's look at just the first of these. John says that we need to know something about God's nature if we want to walk in the light. Now look at what he says there in verse number five. This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So John is making a statement here about the nature of God. He's dealing with the character of God. And the first thing that he wants to draw the attention of his readers to is the character, the nature of God. Not so much their own issues, their own problems, or even their own need. But he's making them aware of who God is as he's revealed himself to be. In fact, notice the way that he arranges his statements here in this paragraph. Because here in verse 5, he's making this statement about God's nature, and it's this statement that serves as the basis for his argument in the verses that follow. Uh, 
In other words, because God is light, then this is how you and I ought to live. This is how we ought to view sin. This is how we ought to view Christ's provision. So he's making this fundamental statement, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. This, John says, it's the message he had received from the Lord, and it's the message that he's now proclaiming to us. In fact, in the original language, um, the words message and proclaim, these are closely related words. Uh, The original um, language, message, this refers uh, to that which has been announced, Uh, proclaim, this refers to the actual act of announcing. In fact, both of these terms are related to the word angel, messenger, message. So John is saying, I am declaring to you the message that I've received from God. I'm not giving you my own opinion on this matter. I've not come up with this on my own. No, this is the message that I'm declaring to you. It's the same message which I have heard from the Lord himself. This is the message that he had personally received from Jesus as an eyewitness to his death and resurrection. John was an apostle. That means he's writing with an apostolic authority that came from Jesus himself. This goes back to what he's already said there in the first four verses of the chapter, which are really his prologue. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we've looked upon, we've touched with our hands concerning this word of life. So he's saying we're an eyewitness to the truth. We're an eyewitness to who God is. We're an eyewitness to what God has done in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so following the prologue, he's now making this proclamation. This is the message that we heard from him, and we've got to proclaim it to you. It's a life-changing message. It's a vital message. It's a crucial message that we've got to embrace if we desire to have fellowship with God. And that's really his point. He wants his readers to enjoy the same fellowship with God that they had enjoyed. So John is saying, what we've had with Christ, I want you to be able to have with Christ. Now think about that. Sometimes we tend to think that we ourselves are at a disadvantage because we live 2,000 years after the fact of the Lord's earthly ministry. And yet, think about what Jesus himself said to his disciples before his own death and resurrection. He says, it's to your advantage that I go away. How is it to their advantage? He says, because the Comforter's going to come. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And for three and a half years, Jesus had been with his disciples, but after his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and he sends his Spirit, now the Spirit of God is going to live in the disciples. So don't think that you're at a disadvantage because you live 19, 20 centuries after the fact of the events that John saw firsthand. Because you can have the same fellowship with God that John had. We can enjoy the same intimacy with God that those early apostles had, that the early church had. But let me tell you something that it might require. It might require that we strip away all that's unnecessary in our life that prevents fellowship. And that's John's concern here in 1 John. He wants us to enjoy close, personal fellowship with God. Am I on? 
I did this once before. I yelled at the top of my lungs and I got through my sermon. If I've got to do it again this service, I'll do it. Can y'all hear me? All right, I'm going to keep on going then. So John's message here, out of the gate to his disciples, to his followers, those that he had been pastor of, he says, this is the message. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. (laughs) There might be darkness here in the room in just a minute, but thank God there's no darkness in the Lord at all. Now, the fact that he's beginning this way, God is light, that might be somewhat unexpected. Because John's going to use the word love 45 times in the letter. And we've made the point that John is declaring something in this letter about the love of God. You might expect him to begin this way, God is love. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't make that statement until we get to chapter 4. You might expect him to say, well, God is kind or God is merciful. God is compassionate. And while that is most certainly true, that's not what John is saying here in verse number five. No, rather he's saying that the most essential element of this message that he has preached, uh, that he's received and he's now preaching to us is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. It's that word light that captures the essence of God's nature. And so there's something that is in keeping with what the the writers of the Old Testament, what they revealed about God. The Old Testament, when referencing light uh, or referencing God, light symbolizes communication, uh, what God reveals. Light is associated with the truth. Uh, Light is associated with the holiness of God, the perfection of God, the moral essence of who God is. In Exodus, God reveals himself to Moses in the midst of a burning bush. God leads his people out of, uh, out of Egypt, and he, he's a pillar of fire by night, cloud by day. Later on, in the tabernacle, in the temple, God is manifest in brilliant light there in the Holy of Holies. David says this in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? Psalm 36, for with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. In other words, we don't understand how the world operates apart from the light of God. What's the first thing that God creates when he creates? In the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, what's the first thing that God says? He says, let there be light. Psalm 104, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great clothed with honor and majesty, you cover yourself with light as with a garment. If you've been here on Wednesday nights, we were in Revelation 4, uh, where John, the apostle John, uh, called a vision of God seated upon his throne. And in Revelation 4, the, the language that he uses to describe what he sees is that of light. Brilliant colors. Uh, these John uses to describe what he sees. Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that God is the only blessed king, king of kings, lord of lords. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen. So when when John is saying God is light, this word light emphasizes God's holiness, God's moral perfection, God's truth. He's separate from sin. He's separate from all that's contrary to his nature. So it means that God is all good. There's nothing bad about him. God is totally pure. There's nothing impure about him. God is completely clean. There's nothing dirty about him. 
God is totally right. There's nothing wrong about him. He is all truth with nothing false. So this is the statement that John is making. He said, this is the message that we've heard from him. We're proclaiming to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In fact, Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. John, in his gospel, when he writes about the word made flesh, uh, he says that in him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus says in John 12, 46, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So folks, listen, pay attention to what John is doing here as he's beginning this letter with this fifth verse. Before he mentions anything about us, he wants us to know something about God. The message he declares begins with God. It does not begin with me. The gospel begins with God in his glory, not man in his need. Now listen to me, we all came through the doors this morning, and I imagine all of us to some degree have some sense of our need in some particular area. You're dealing with an issue. There's something going on at work. There's something going on at home. There's a personal struggle that you've got, maybe that only you and the Lord know about. If we're not easy, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves becoming so caught up with our own sense of need that we lose sight of the fact that the gospel begins with God and His glory before it begins with me and my need. Because listen, only will I understand my need when I see it in light of God's glory. That's why John is beginning his epistle this way. This is the message we've heard from God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. This runs absolutely contrary to the way that we tend to think in our individualistic society. We live in a very me-centered time. And that's basic to fallen human nature. We want to make everything about us. Self is supreme. We like to place ourselves at the center of the universe. Many of you are familiar with David Foster Wallace. He was a professor author, brilliant mind. He wasn't a believer, but he was, he was enamored by Christianity. He was fascinated by it. In 2000, he took his own life tragically several years ago, but in 2005, he was speaking, uh, giving the commencement address at Kenyon College. And he made some statements that, listen to this, because it pretty much sums up the attitude of our times, he said, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I'm the absolute center of the universe. Now, he's not saying that as a thing of pride. He's just saying that to to call attention to the fact that we live in a very me-centered generation. The realest, most vivid, most important person in existence, me, we rarely think about this sort of basic self-centeredness because it's socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into us from birth. You never had to teach your kids how to be selfish. Nobody ever taught you how to be selfish. There's just something basic and fundamental. It's because of our fallen nature. We automatically look at the world from the vantage point of self as our frame of reference. 
And even in our technological age, there's no experience you've had that you're not the absolute center of. Because literally, the world's at our fingertips. We can experience it right there in front of us. Create our own little world digitally and rule it as a God. Expel from our lives anybody who disagrees with us, anybody we don't like. We can unfollow, we can mute, we can make disappear. <laughs> Add to this the fact that we, the selfie. The, the, the selfie. There was a book written uh, several years ago, uh, three years ago, in fact, Craig Detweiler. He wrote about this selfie phenomenon. The, the title of the book is called Selfie. But listen to this. He said, selfies have been proven to be far more than a threat to civility and sacred spaces. They can actually be dangerous. And then he gives several examples of how. He says, there was a Spanish man gored to death when he tried to take a selfie amid the running of the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. A 15-year-old in India, photographing himself holding his father's gun, died when he accidentally pulled the trigger instead of pushing the photo button. Two parents taking a selfie stepped off ocean cliffs in Portugal and tumbled to their deaths in front of their children. Now listen to this. He said, we can get cut off from our surroundings, lose focus, and suspend judgment in pursuit of the perfect picture. I mean, doesn't that pretty much sum up our existence and what so much of humanity is living for? We, we lose sight of those around us, the people in our lives, they no longer matter. We lose focus as far as what life is really all about. We suspend all moral judgment in pursuit of the perfect idea, the pursuit of the perfect picture as we pursue self. More people died from taking selfies in 2015 than from shark attacks. <laughs> And so to this selfie generation, John's message is so convicting because John says, this is the message that we've heard from God. It begins with God. God in his glory. Not so much me and my wants or me and even my need, but God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And the truth of the Bible is that I can never know myself until I look at myself, not in the mirror in my bathroom, but as I look at myself in the mirror of God's word and in the light of God's own holiness and what God reveals about me. So I've got to start not with myself, but with God and his glory. And John is clear in this. And folks, this is why the gospel is such welcome news, because God is light, and it's only in his light that we're truly able to see our need. That's why the gospel is good news. The bad news, I'm a sinner in need of salvation. I can't save myself. I have a need, but there's nothing that I can do to save myself or alleviate that need. I need God. And John's saying, let me tell you, there's some good news here. Now, I want to wrap this up. I told you I was only going to preach one point. But let me give you just some quick closing principles as to why this is so important, that we know something about God's nature. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The first important principle is this. When we understand that God is light, only then will we truly be able to understand ourselves. When we understand the truth that God is light, we will come to see ourselves as we really are. Billy Graham used to tell the story 
about how an interviewer came to interview him at his home. And they were going to interview him for a program that was going to be put on television, nationwide television. So before the filming crew came, his wife Ruth, she went through great effort to see that the house was spotless, to see that the living room looked nice. She vacuumed, she dusted, she tidied up the whole house. She went over the living room with a fine tooth comb. Well, whenever the film crew arrived and they set up their cameras, they turned on their lights, before they flipped the switch, she was proud that the room was so spick and span. But here's what Dr. Graham said. He said, we were in place along with the interviewer when suddenly the television lights were turned on and we saw cobwebs and dust where we had never seen them before. (laughs) In the words of my wife, the room was festooned with dust and cobwebs which simply did not show up under ordinary light. And so it is with the light of God's holiness. No matter how hard we work to try to clean up our lives in our own effort, in our own strength, we may think we've got them in order. But John says that when we see ourselves in the light of God's holiness, the dust is exposed. The deepest, darkest inner recesses of my heart are exposed by this truth that God is light. Now, notice secondly, not only do I understand myself better, but when I grasp the holiness of God, when I understand that God is light, I'll better understand the cross. I'll appreciate it that much more when I understand that God is a holy and righteous God. And listen, apart from this understanding that God is light, the cross doesn't make sense. If God is love and he's not light, then why in the world would he have ever subjected his son to such horror on the tree. That doesn't make sense. And if God is not light and if God is all love, then that means I can minimize the horror and the agony and the the, the suffering associated with the cross, the blood of the cross. I can ignore that and focus more on the ethical teachings of Jesus. No, listen, John says God is light. And when we understand that God is light and God is holy, we understand what it cost God in order to save me, rescue me from my sin. It cost him nothing less than the death of his son. The only one who could qualify as my sin-bearing substitute because Christ alone was without sin. So I'm I'm able to understand the cross when I understand that God is light. Third, When I understand that God is light, I'll have a better understanding of worship. Worship will take on more meaning, new meaning, when I understand that God is light. He's holiness. By the way, there's a connection in Scripture between holiness and worship. Those two things always go hand in hand. God is holy. And when's the last time in your mind as a believer you just meditated upon the holiness of God? You got a glimpse of just the holiness of God. And by the way, doesn't this make the love of God all that much more profound when you consider the fact that this holy God, this perfect God, this awesome God still desires to have a relationship with me, someone who's so sinful, someone who has such weakness? Oh, 
Because when I come to grips with the holiness of God, I'll worship God as he's intended to be worshiped. I can't help but burst forth in song, open up my heart, give of my time and my resources, join others in a celebration of worship and praise. Something else, when I understand that God is light, I'll better understand my own personal need for personal holiness. It'll lead me to cultivate personal holiness in my own life. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12 that we ought to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then one final thing, when I understand that God is light, I'll have a better understanding of Christ's return. Because one of these days, the world is going to understand what John means in verse 5 when he says God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Why? Because the Son of God is going to be revealed from heaven in all of his radiance, in all of his majesty, in all of his power. And those of us who've placed our faith and our trust in him, one day we're going to be like him. Because the Bible says we're going to see him as he is. This is why John says what he does in chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. We know that when he appears, we will be like him and we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Folks, aren't you grateful that God is light? And in him there is no darkness at all. You know what that means? It means in the darkest moments of your life, you can trust him. When you hurt, when you experience disappointment, when you're wounded, when you go through crisis of some kind, you can trust God's character because you know something about God's nature. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That means you may not understand why he allows something into your life, but you can trust him nonetheless. In him there is no darkness at all. He's not out to get me. He's not out to hurt me. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? <clears throat> Walking in the light, what does it demand? John says that it demands we know something about God's nature. This is the message that we've heard from him and we proclaim to you, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. You feel like you're in the dark? Then be encouraged by the fact that God is light. He's holy. And we trust you, Lord. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Lord, may we never lose sight of the fact that you are a holy and awesome God. And it's easy for us to want to get so caught up, Lord, with our own sense of need. But Lord, may we be reminded of this precious truth that, God, that John is reminding his readers of, that God is light. It begins with you, Lord, with you and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.